Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. As we get closer and closer to, well, to Christmas. Are you on the naughty list or the nice list? Uh, By now, it's too late for just about everything in that regard. So hope you're scoring big and you don't get a lump of coal in your stocking this year. And I hope you're getting out and doing some hunting as well. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a couple recent hunts. In fact, the major portion of the podcast will be a debrief on a, well, it turned out to be a quail and a pheasant hunt uh, in some interesting country with a very good friend. So we'll talk about that at length. But we'll also have the Upland Nation puzzler and a prize. You might be able to win a new over-the-shoulder Jaeger lead of my design. And it's all made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food, and welcome to our newest sponsor, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. The Upland Nation Podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, crafted at the highest caliber. Sign up for the mailing list. You'll get first notice of their very rare sales and all the new products that come around the corner at sageandbreaker.com. And Legacy Sports, they bring in the pointer shotguns. LegacySports.com is their address. Find out about all those new colors, Cerakoted Acreous over and unders, and then their semi-automatics in olive drab, gray, and bronze, just to add a little flash to your shotgunning world. Make everybody else in the hunting party just a little jealous. It's all at LegacySports.com. Then click on the Pointer Shotguns tab. Well, you know, it's funny how all these things work. Um, And uh, this one is a classic example of the social media working in a really good way. You know, we we look at the bad side quite often, but the good side works as well. This is a person who I uh, initially met and corresponded with back and forth on uh, Facebook. We had some things in common. We lived in the same general area. We hunted some of the same general areas and uh, enjoyed talking back and forth with this guy. And then another friend and I were hunting chuckers, and it turns out Hungarian partridge too, in the middle of freaking nowhere. And we had split up and we were going to get back to the same spot, a little water hole, which actually had a picnic table how it got there is beyond me but i got there first and i was uh, drinking a beer waiting for ben to show up when um up this really bad road that we had braved comes another pickup laboring up over those boulders and first gear maybe low four-wheel drive and i'm looking at that truck thinking man that guy's crazy and then i thought well he's got to be even crazier he's pulling in and parking next to me Out of the passenger side comes my friend, Ben. Out of the other side comes the other guy. Ben says, yeah, I was walking up the hill and this guy walked by, I mean, drove by and um, said, are you lost? No. 
Are you trying to get somewhere? Yeah, I'm going up that hill over there. Uh, that's where we parked. My friend Scott Linden and I have been hunting all day, and I'm going back to get a beer with him. And this guy said, Scott Linden, I'll give you a ride. And sure enough, that's who it was, my good friend, Mark Avolio. Let's welcome him to the show. How you been? Uh, good, good. Just bright, sunny day here in Central Oregon. You know, it's funny, when we talked about doing this podcast, we were hunting together, and we're going to talk about that at length in just a moment. But but uh, the when we arranged the schedule here, uh, your dogs were getting a few well-deserved days off, and um, so was mine. And uh, it's because over the course of that last uh, long weekend where we were all in the same uh, area code, um, my dog had done a total of 50 miles in three days. I'd, I'm afraid to guess how many miles your dogs had done because you were covering bigger ground for, for a little bit of that. How are the dogs all doing? They're doing fine. They're yeah. doing fine. You know, we, um, we avoided any porcupine issues, luckily, that weekend. So everybody's good. Yeah, in fact, that was a funny day. We're not going to talk much about that day. There was a lot to talk about, but the, the, the two porcupine porcupine finds. But, uh, you know, it was still a beautiful day and uh, got some fellowship with our friend uh, Felton as well and saw some country. And you guys, with better eyes than me, saw several dozen to hundred elk in the distance, didn't you? Yes, we did. Yeah. We did. They're... They're, as usual, sitting on the property lines so <laughs> so they can make a quick escape legally. Yeah, I, I, it's just like seasons, you know. Do they read those regulations too? <laughs> they must. I swear they must. Well, you're running all English setters and, uh, you know, kind of a wide variety of them, and I hunted with all three of them over the course of two days. Um, why'd you pick English setters? Um, I I. Well, gosh, it goes back a long time from back when I lived in the Midwest. They were more of a predominant uh, bird dog species there, and uh, and I like their style. I mean, the the tail and uh, the feathered tail and the style and and so on. It just uh, uh, it's, you know, it just it it just makes things better as far as I'm concerned. It's visually pleasing. Yeah. Uh, nothing against other breeds or anything, but, uh, the, um, uh, uh, you know, when you're back East and a lot of grouse hunting and so on, it's about, you know, English setters and you had the, all the George bird Evans stuff too, that kind of influences one, uh, in their late teens, early twenties as well. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Maybe that is the time. We used to call them the Wonder Years back in the day, and not because of the TV show, but because there was a bread. Yeah, before the TV show, folks, there was a bread called Wonder Bread. Uh, look it up. Uh, but the, our formative years are when a lot of those kind of, uh, I'll call them aesthetic um, decisions are, are made, uh, whether it's your taste in music or anything else, I'll bet. You know, I'm still working on it here. Flick, uh, Flick is as bad as your setters when it comes to attracting burrs and briars. Uh, at least on his ears, because his ears, I, I looked at them and I thought, you know, he's got feathering on his ears that would match any English setter. Do you deal with that a lot? I mean, after that Monday hunt we did, I pulled a uh, half dozen or more off each ear. Well, with the, with my setters, I mean, we're still at the point where I shave them just before the season starts. Uh -huh. 
and they're still somewhat slick coated in terms of their bodies. But, uh, you know, as you said, the ears and around the backsides of the ears yeah. and the tails wind up uh, attracting most of the burrs. Um, where we were hunting uh, the last day has a lot of the bigger, I don't know what kind of burrs they're called, as opposed to the lice burrs. The lice burrs, you can just comb out. It's no yeah, big deal. Yeah. But those sort of oval-shaped ones with the spikes on them, uh, yeah, they get, they are trouble. And in fact, after a while, you just, you know, the dogs don't like you messing with the tails when you're trying to get the burrs out. So the feathering is a little jagged on the tails of my dog because I wind up cutting them out. <laughs> Look like sawtooth feathering. Okay, so uh, you're starting a trend, and that's way better than any of those doodle breeds, by the way. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it's interesting. I didn't see you work on any of that. I, I worked on Flick a lot when we got home and uh, got almost all of them out, but a couple didn't come out, and I just left them. I was I didn't want to go through the, the drama anymore. Now all but one are gone, and that one's probably going to fall off today, so I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. So you, you end up cutting those out of there most of the time. Some, some of them, yeah. some, particularly when you get into the tail and they yeah. get knotted up. And one of the dogs has got a much thicker uh, feathering on his tail than the other dogs mm -hmm, do. Mm -hmm. It's just difference in individuals. And I've learned, for mine anyway, I'll give them a day yeah. uh, to pull them off. Because yep. they're really, actually, yeah, if I tried to pull some of those off, they wouldn't be happy, but they can pull them off themselves. And in fact, all three dogs... I've had several dogs do this, not just these three. They'll pull the burrs off and set them outside of either their kennel or their doghouse. Yeah, I believe it. Like a little pile. <laughs> and so I'll wait a day or so and then go back over them. Yeah. Um, and I use a kind of a burr comb type yeah. of thing. It's not a brush. And you can kind of saw them out of there with yeah. the burr comb. Yeah. And then fall else fails, like we were talking, you either cut them out or you can actually roll them out with your fingers. But yeah. the problem with that is, is eventually your fingers get sore. Yeah, they do. It they're they're sharper than you think. I think they're called Teasel, T E A S L E. And then uh when I was leading a bunch of cub scouts, we used to call them porcupine eggs. Well, that's a good description. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty much what they look like. Um you know, I w I want to take a moment and indulge me here, Mark, because we I want to talk about that last day of our hunt because it was um spectacular in many ways. In fact, you said that too. So so we agree on yet another thing, but let me just uh give a little bit of backstory. You and I talk a lot. We hunt once in a while and and uh and it's all wonderful, but in the course of doing all of that, you mentioned a place up in that town north of where I was parked at the time and and you said, yeah, you know, come on up, do this, do that. Uh, and you might have mentioned the name of that person. Uh, but many years ago when I was just getting out of the music business and I was in the public relations business, one of my clients was the Oregon Sheep Commission. Yeah, I know. I got all the glamour jobs. Uh, <laughs> and the one person on that commission who was always – he always had my back. And he was – I mean, these are classic – these are ranchers. These are guys – they still have that stuff on their boots when they come to the meetings. Practical, salt-of-the-earth guys. And this guy always had my back. So you said, come on up, you know, and uh, I'll meet you at this place. It's behind the general store, and it's in this place. You can't miss it. I drive up, and as I get to that wide spot in the road with two homes on it and a general store, 
Um, the big sign says so-and-so's ranch since 1915. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's the guy I used to work with. Here he is right here. I knew he was out in this country. I didn't know right there. So I was honored because I respected that guy, Henry, so much. I was honored that we were able to be able, you know, to hunt, basically hunt right down the middle of his ranch. Uh, that was spectacular. And, um, you know, you're the master at finding those kind of places. I mean, what brought you to, uh, let me just describe it real quick. Um, I know I have a guest, everybody, but let me just describe this as best I can. This is a, this is a, 106 year old sheep cattle and hay ranch in northeast oregon rolling hills covered with bunch grass and in some of the best places cheat grass uh but at the bottom of some of these are creek bottoms so, you know so you've got a pasture you got a creek bottom that's you know maybe six to 15 feet deep depending on where you are well, it may be surrounded by hay fields or grass or CRP or something like that. Those creek bottoms are full of everything from Russian olive trees to teasel and uh, a lot of teasel, uh, cattails, um, you know, a lot of greenery, a lot of berry bushes and thickets. And, and of course, on both sides, wire fences. And we'll talk about that in a moment, too. But uh, we got to walk up and down that creek. Uh, thanks to you, Mark. So. So tell me, what brings you to a place like that? When you're looking for places to hunt, why do you seek out places like Henry's place? Well, you know, there's a certain amount of luck involved to start with in terms of just getting access to these places. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll make this as quick as possible, but I originally got pointed at that property um, through a referral. Yeah. when I was looking at some other property uh, closer in in central Oregon. And it's, it was like, well, you know, this is enough acreage to do big running dogs. And the gentleman I was talking to said, oh, I've got a, a cousin who uh, is looking for members at a club. <laughs> and so uh, he gave me his name. He, he actually came over to my house to sell me and another friend on the idea of joining this hunt club, if you can believe that or not. Yeah, nice to be wanted once in a while. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm t- and, so I'm told, you know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, so we went out there, took a look at the place. And uh, to be honest with you, at that point, I, it was my first dog. I'd only had the dog for six months, and I was just looking to be able to um, really embrace the sport, uh, the upland hunting sport with the bird dogs and so on. And so I knew one of the things that, that I had read and been told is, look, if you got these dogs, you're going to need ground. You know, you just can't go and hunt a half, a, have a half a section to hunt. You need big ground to hunt. And this was several thousand acres. And um, it had a mixed bag, it turns out, as we went over and took a look at it, a mixed mm-hmm. bag of uh, chuckers, huns, valley quail, and pheasants. And um, so you could literally, when the dog goes on point at any time, as it turned out, any one of those species could come up. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it makes for an interesting uh, hunt every time you go out. But you just look at the property, and it's got water, it's got brush, um, it's got hillsides, um, it's got the the grass. The way they manage the property uh, is um, what I would call, oh, I guess maybe the right term would be almost benign. 
they don't um the the irrigation they do is not uh pivots uh it's it's managed on a holistic basis and so it's you know i've been hunting there for a long long time and it's just as good as it was um back in the 90s quite frankly you know, you, so. made, you you just used a word that I, I I hadn't used in a while, but we made a TV show out in Kansas a few years ago uh, at at um, at a place that was it, uh, it had transitioned to uh, organic farming, uh, and and I called it dirty farming. That's an old term from way back where you you know you still had uh, fence rows and you didn't kill out every bug and every weed and everything else, and it became just a mecca. In that, in this case, for ringnecks, uh, but down there at Henry's place, it was uh, ringnecks and more, as the commercials go, wasn't it? It was, and it still is. Yeah. And um, yeah, you just look at the property, and it, it, it's it's getting, as I found out, it's getting more and more difficult to get adequate uh, acreage of ground to hunt. Mm-hmm. These ranches tend to get broken up over the years. You know, Grandpa gives the two sons each half the ranch and then they give their kids each a half of their half of the ranch and the next thing you know nobody's got more than a couple of sections and uh, i've been real lucky in a couple of places i do hunt where that's not happened and um but they again the management of the ground and the way they ranch and farm contributes to that yeah, absolutely right, and and it does require number one uh, a far-sighted owner, if you will, and then from there they've got to be a, a you know a, a broad-minded manager on top of everything else. And next time I'm up in that country, I will go say I will go pay my compliments to Henry for his hard work and the fact that he's passed down that work ethic and that that holistic ethic to. Um, to his uh, family as well you know um let's get to hunting because uh, that's what this upland nation podcast is about i'm scott linden the host that's my friend mark avolio hunting buddy and facebook friend yeah it does work that way once in a while when we were corresponding by text you said i said man that was an incredible hunt it was epic in many ways and you said yeah it was wasn't it what what about it i mean we we walked oh a mile and a half downstream turned around after lunch walked a mile and a half two miles upstream um what was it about that hunt that that made it stick out in your mind uh well first of all um you know you have to have what i call a combination of things Mm -hmm. and that that, uh, events converge we had a wonderfully uh cool day not cold uh, a light breeze uh high humidity and so that that meant the dogs could work all day long or as long as we wanted them to the scenting conditions were good and uh we didn't have to contend with um you know i call bad weather which is great which yeah. you know, and that was particularly the wind, and and you know, get you get west, or excuse me, east of the Cascades, uh, wind can be a huge factor. I mean, I've had days where I've had to pull the slide in on my travel trailer because it was so windy, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just, you know, it was overcast. So again, it didn't put a lot of pressure on the dogs in terms of heat because you can have a thirty degree day, and if it's bright and sunny, the dogs, at least the longer haired dogs like we have uh tend to feel the heat more just in the sunshine even if it's 30 degrees so so that was nice and then we have one of these years too where um uh 
we've got a good mixed bag of birds. It's kind of a, what I call a, a level. Well, all the all the birds that we're looking for, all the species are, uh, I say, equally present. Yeah. You know, do this long enough, you realize there's definite cycles to the bird populations. In some years, there's a lot of pheasants and not a lot of quail. Some years, there's a lot of quail, not a lot of pheasants. In some years, there's only chucker, et cetera, and so on. And this year, there seems to be just a good uh, balance of birds, which makes it even more exciting. It's almost like, uh, again, sort of a lottery every time the dog goes on point. You saw that for firsthand that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was incredible in so many ways. And, and, I, and I, I don't want to gush about that, but I do want to get down to the, uh, you know, to the basics of how that works. You know, we talk about this a lot, you know, and we cross our fingers in August and September when the biologists come out with their guesses about reproduction success and that sort of thing. But ultimately, it's a watershed by watershed situation. And you may have a really bad hatch in one area, but the next draw over it may be a good one. We got lucky on all of that. And we got lucky in, like you said, it, most of the bird species too over the course of that weekend uh, i'll talk more about those later <clears throat> pardon me but uh, you know i saw more hungarian partridge on saturday of that weekend than i'd seen in the last two or three seasons put together but um but down there at henry's place um we had we had everything going for us and interestingly on that downstream walk in the morning we had the wind at our back which was you know it could have been better but you know we we learned to live with that a smart dog knows what to do and and i'll never forget the 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 first find we had i thought my dog was pointing a porcupine after you know sundays (laughs) Uh, he's on your side and and he's i mean he is rock solid i couldn't find him he was so camouflaged down there in in the thick stuff and his nose was right up against what I think was just a little clump of brush in a whole bunch of other brush. Um, but, you know, you can tell, you know what your dogs look like. And it was not a porcupine point once I found him. And you could tell that with your dogs in both directions. He he had come back around. He had gone, worked his way downstream, which was also downwind. And then he'll come back quite often when I'm lucky and I fed him right. Uh, he'll come back and he'll work the wind in towards me. And he was on your side when he hit that point. And uh, we're talking, you know, three, four minutes before we could get down there. And you had to you had to push your way through a thicket of some sort of little trees, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that, that's a good point we said earlier. It's just a little bit of moisture in one draw or a mile to the east or west or whatever the case may be can make a huge difference in the cover and what holds birds. Um, you wouldn't have known from hunting that creek bottom that we had a severe drought this summer. It, and I've seen that before, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, further south from where we were uh, and, uh, and some of the, the ranch hunts I've done down there with friends. But, you know, in this case, we, we hit it just right that dog stayed steady you walked down there i think i even threw a rock or two trying to get that bird up while you were still up on top but somebody had to go down and you were on the correct side of the creek so you got to mountaineer your way down did anybody shoot anything out of that flush i I think well i think you got that bird as i said as i was going down into the creek bottom through the brush was like cover me i'm going in yeah (laughs) 
And, and it was, uh, by the way, when we say quail, yeah, we're talking valley quail out here, or what some people call California quail. If you're listening and you're east of the Rockies, you, you're probably visualizing a different bird, but these are incredible as, you know, look it up if you don't know. But they're, they they will behave for a dog once in a while. And um, so we're we're working down that thing. And, and you know, the, the thing that struck me, it struck you first because you were, you know, you were the host and you were, you know, trying to set expectations. And, and you mentioned that these were all singles. We never busted a whole covey until um, the afternoon, did we? Yeah, that's and that that was you know one of the things I was going to try and mention earlier was that what was really nice about that day and you don't get to see this very often as you just said is these these quail for some reason were scattered out normally with the particularly with the valley quail it's like you find a get a covey pointed maybe you get a bird out of it you try and mark them down you wait for I don't know five ten minutes give them a chance to settle down and then you send the dogs back towards, you know, send the dogs out to where you've marked the covey down. Um, I, we, that wasn't the case. I mean, we, we got up, I think in total four coveys that day. And if I recall correctly, because of the way they got up and the way we were spread out, I think you only got a shot at one of the coveys. I never shot at any, any of the covey rises. I was just not in the right position. That was because I was being a good guest. <laughs> And, uh, but that was, you know, again, to your point, it was very interesting. The birds were scattered out and, you know, I, if I live to be 200 years old, I, I mean, I'll never understand why one day they're all bunched up in coveys of 30 and 40 birds. And then some days you'd find them scattered out like that and find coveys too. I just, I don't quite, you know, some bi biologist somewhere should, uh, game bird biologist somewhere should, uh chime in someday and explain why that behavior changes like that. I mean, the only thing I can think is I know there was a weather system coming in and they mm -hmm. might've just been scattered out feeding, but that was like that all day from first thing in the morning to the last shot at four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And that, that is a great observation. The other one that I would have, because we'll never get a biologist out from behind their desk to actually <laughs> do some field work. Just kidding, everybody. That was a joke. If you're a game bird biologist out there, please help inform all of us about how that behavior begins and what causes it. But I'll never forget a time I was making a show in Kansas. Now, these are pheasants, uh, maybe a little bit more hinky, maybe not. But I'm, I'm sitting there in front of the camera talking to the governor of Kansas, and we're talking. And in the background, we just keep hearing birds flying up. So I turn around, I look back there. There's a little draw, and there's, you know, every... 10 seconds another rooster flies up out of that draw that we we're going to hunt on tv and sure enough we conclude the conversation the camera goes off i turn around again and out the bottom of that draw comes one coyote yeah. he had pushed every bird in that entire draw out of the draw and we were starting over again somewhere else so you know i think a lot of times it might be predators i don't know if anybody else has a theory share it with me on facebook or send me an email or something because i am intrigued by that um i, I wanted to get to this before our break which is coming up yes in just a moment here at the upland nation podcast we got a lot more to talk about in terms of valley quail and some other things plus the upland nation puzzler quiz and a prize and your thoughts on the weekend but first mark so out of that creek bed as you've said who knows what's going to come up next and something else did come up uh, 
Well, we had pheasants too. Yeah. So how do you, how, you know, how do you load your gun for this thing? I mean, I, we did our best, I guess. Um, I, I was shooting seven and a halfs in the right and sixes in the left. And I figured that put me at a disadvantage for both, which is usually how it works with me. But what about you? I, I have, uh, I use uh, seven and a half. I use good plated shot, mm-hmm. which um, I found from experience years ago that uh, keeps the pellets in better shape. Um, you get better penetration. Um, I won't name any brands, but um, I shoot seven and a half. Predominantly, there's what I call small birds involved. Yeah. Um, chuckers, huns, and quail. And, um, you know, uh, try and measure your shots. And by that, I mean don't take uh, bad shots or take iffy shots um, or questionable shots. I'm not quite sure what the right term is if you've got a shot at a pheasant. But again, we're shooting over pointing docks, and uh, generally you're not going to get a shot much over 25 yards at a pheasant. And um, so the seven and a halfs are, are just fine, particularly if you've got good plated shot. And um, they you know, work fine. I've killed a lot of pheasants with the seven and a halfs. But sure. on the other hand, some of the other ranches where it's predominantly going to be pheasants, I use sixes. I mean, uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, really a matter of uh, making sure you're 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 tuned into the species you're going to hunt that day um but you know if you're going to shoot quail i'm uh, my preference absolutely is seven and a half and and the other thing is uh chokes improve mm-hmm. cylinder in both barrels yeah which I, I know a lot of people like well that kind of defeats the purpose of two barrels and i've you know i found that most of the problems, at least my personal opinion has been, is that most people are over-choked when they go upland bird hunting, particularly if you're shooting over pointing dogs. Yeah, I'm looking right now at a uh, pattern paper from one of the Italian guns I gave away in a contest a long time ago, and, and they're patterning at 30 yards over there in Italy, and, and, and that, that pattern is, you know, it's three feet across, period, at 30 yeah. yards. Yeah, and I... Uh, you know, and I've actually taken the time and effort to go out with multiple gauges, um, with seven and a half and sixes, uh, same ma- uh, ammunition manufacturer, and actually did the pattern thing. Mm-hmm. And and I can tell you that my my shotguns, again, not naming any brands, uh, improved cylinder puts seventy five percent of the pellets with seven and a half, plated seven and a halfs in the circle at twenty five yards. Yeah. You know, that's a nice, and that's a wonderfully dense pattern for uh, quail hunting um, and for other birds too. Yeah. You know, it, um, and then, you know, if I can go off on a little tangent, I, I got a lot of a huge education shooting sporting clays. Sure. And I learned a lot from guys who just shoot sporting clays. And I can distinctly remember one time where uh, we were shooting a mini station, crossing mini station. I was like, I was missing every one of them. And I was like, how the hell is this happening? You know, there are minis on a side, which has very small target. And the guy I was shooting with uh, goes, well, what are you doing shooting? I go, I got improved cylinder in seven and a half. And he goes, goes switch to uh, uh, improved cylinder. And if you've got nines, use those to get yeah. a denser, even denser yeah. pattern. Mm-hmm. I bro- After that, I broke every one of them. Literally, mm-hmm. those birds were flying, the, the clay birds were flying through the pattern. 
Yeah, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to amplify that as well. I'm working with Trulock Chokes on some projects right now, and and George Trulock, number one, is a brilliant man in many respects. But what he has taught me already is, um, it's not the uh, breadth of your shot pattern, and at times it's not even the depth of your shot pattern because we know, you know, pellets come out of the barrel and they spread out lengthwise and widthwise. It's the density. And the wrong choke or the wrong load or the wrong size shot, whatever it is, there are so many variables that affect the the spaces in between the pellets. And he, he makes a good point. If you're going to pattern your gun at whatever you think is the appropriate distance, look at those pellet holes and see if there are any bird-sized spaces between the pellet holes. If there are, something's, something needs attention. Yeah, and, and the important thing there, too, and one of the things that you have to make the transition to in your thinking is when you pattern, you're patterning at a stationary or part. Mm -hmm. So your pattern is the stringing and the density uh, is not the same when you're moving the shotgun either. Good you point. Tend to, yeah, so you intend to actually even stretch that pattern out further. Yeah, so it just makes it even harder. <laughs> right. Or put it a different way, the density decreases as you string that yeah. shot out. All right, just for the record, um, yeah, if you um, if any of the ammo folks are listening out there and they have any 7.5s for a 28-gauge, uh, <laughs> feel free to send it my way. I'm desperate for it right now, That although I had, had a very pleasant surprise over the weekend. I'll share that someday. Anyway, Mark, I'm going to give you a minute and a half, no more to relax for a moment while I pay a couple bills around here. This is the Upland Nation podcast. That's Mark Avolio on that end. I'm Scott Linden on this end. Yeah, lots more to come, uh, including your uh, summary of your last weekend's hunt. But first, uh, happyjackincorporated.com. Happyjackinc.com could save you a trip to the vet once in a while. Yeah, Mark and I are talking about this hunt on Henry's Place. You know, you run a ranch, and you run a ranch with sheep and cows and maybe a horse or two, and then who knows what else. You got a lot of barbed wire on that ranch, and Flick uh, ran 50 miles over that three-day weekend, and my guess is he probably crossed under, over, or through 50 wire fences. Knockwood, no serious problems, but he did have a scratch here, a little bit of a gouge there every once in a while. I check him after every hunt, and then once it's clean... I use Happy Jack Seal and Heal. You spray it on, it's pretty simple. No dog's going to object to it. It doesn't sting or anything like that. And it'll keep the dog from licking that, um, that wound. It's got a bittering agent in it that will prevent the dog from licking it off. It kind of sort of coalesces. I, want, I won't say harden because it's not like hard, but it, it seals off the wound so it will heal faster and it keeps all the other bad stuff out for the next hunt and the next hunt and everything else i did a video on this and a few other things so go to the youtube channel for me scott linden outdoors youtube channel and you can watch the whole video on wound management but the critical factor in that is seal and heal from happyjackinc.com and of course i don't travel anywhere without my Roughland kennel flick gets a real comfortable ride he's safe in there these are the folks uh, doug sangle developed 
the Roto-Molded Dog Kennel. You want to take a look at all of their products by going to RoughLandKennels.com. And Rough is spelled just like your dog would spell it, R-U-F-F, Rough Land Kennels. Been using the heck out of the new dog bowls I got. You know Dr. Tim Hunt, the dog food guy I talk about. Well, he says if your dog is going to drink maltodextrin in a water mixture at the end of the day, the dog will drink it better out of a plastic bowl than out of a metal bowl. So I am using the heck out of the Roughland Kennels accessories as well. Learn more at RoughlandKennels.com. Now, Mark, if you haven't bought your Roughland Kennel or Happy Jack Incorporated stuff yet, that's okay. But if you went away, I'm going to be really mad at you. Are you still there? I'm still here. Good. Okay. By the way, how's the rest of that whiskey I left with you? It's it's it was wonderful. It still is. Yeah. It's it. You know, again, I, I think I've mentioned this to you and to others. I I try not to drink the same whiskey or the same craft beer twice if I can help it, and that was one I found just uh, just by sheer chance. And so uh, enjoy it and thank you. It's this the least I can do. Oh we're, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Save me just a a, a little bit. <laughs> We're talking to Mark Avolio, one of my hunting buddies, uh, started out as a Facebook friend. And yeah, so, it, you know, it works once in a while, and I'm grateful for it. We share a lot of the same country, but that place we were at, Henry's Place, was brand I had never been on that highway before. I had never heard of that town you were staying in. And by the way, it's pretty cool, everybody. This, this, uh, this club that Mark is in has been on that ranch for a long, long time, and like I said, there's one other building besides the two ranch places, and that's the general store. No longer in business. Front half still looks like it could be open from 1895, for example. Back end is now Mark's Clubhouse and Bar and Grill. <laughs> literally you know we had we had both of those but anyway it was it was really really wonderful to to be around all that history and then to you know again to be working on henry's ground for a change you did shoot her pheasant that's what we were getting at when we were starting to talk about shot sizes and all that you brought it down but it was like so many other of those birds it was a runner and um you you had to go quite a way none neither of the dogs i don't think saw that bird go down no and i've got you know i think we talked before another pod different dogs have different personalities yeah and the dog i had on the ground that day um i don't think he'd retrieve a bowl of dog food <laughs> he just he's not a retriever he just yeah. he'll hunt dead he'll hunt dead but um, in terms of uh, retrieving birds or, or working running birds or something that the crippled birds, it just does, isn't what he what he does. It's just that simple. And so, um, unfortunately, when I knocked the bird down, it was kind of out in the open in a field, and I was able to track him down myself and finally run him to ground. And but there's a good a good good. Um, a uh, uh, good lesson there too though that bird essentially had expired when i got to him yeah and yeah. that's why it's so important to follow up you know if you hit a bird it goes down keep keep after it or if you if you shot at a bird and i've had this happen a number of times where it's like there's no way i missed that bird how, yeah. how, how did it not go down i've had that happen where I, I follow up where i think i saw the bird fly to and found it stone dead 300 yards away 
Absolutely. So just, and, and I've had that happen a number of different times. So just a, a quick note on please follow up your shots. If you have even any inkling whatsoever that you might've hit the bird. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I've had things where I shot a pheasant and thought there's no way I missed that bird. It kind of went over a hill 40 yards away. I go up on top of the hill and it's there stone dead, but it never looked like it was going down. Oh, I, re I related one of those stories last week and I'll relate another one. I'm sure in another week or so, because it does happen almost on a daily basis. And we got part of that is we got to get our dogs a little bit more motivated. Part of it is this marking. And I've answered that question once or twice as well, especially in, well, in last week's newsletter, if you don't get the newsletter, check me out. Um, question about marking down birds and that sort of thing, but it's absolutely true. And in fact, it's, it's funny. Uh, it did happen that afternoon. Um, we were, we were both hunting, uh, upstream, heading upstream. And of course the wind had swapped ends by then and it was going in the wrong direction again. Uh, but we got a covey rise or two and by right, everything's relative. We're picture yourselves. Um, there's a Creek at the bottom and it's running and there's all that vegetation tangles of various sorts, broken ground and, uh, you name it. But 12 to 15 feet on each side is the cliff. And we're walking basically the cliff, the Creek, the top looking down at the Creek. So when a dog goes on point, most of those birds never get as high as where we are standing. So we're shooting down all the time. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's my excuse and I will continue to use it. But, but once in a while, even the blind hog found the occasional acorn and, 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 you know, we hit a few and we got some good retrieves and all that. But one that sticks out is both of us knew you hadn't hit that quail as it jetted off in that direction downstream, essentially. And we continued hunting, but, um, a certain wire here in our party said, yeah, um, I don't think so. And son of a gun, if I didn't turn around three or four minutes later and here comes flick with a dead quail in his mouth. And it could only have been that quail. Couldn't it? It had to have been. I mean, we, um, I know for a fact, we're the only ones who have hunted there for the last 10 or 12 days. I mean, so it wasn't like somebody else shot the quail and, uh, and your dog eventually found it um but it was one of those that's again a good example it's one of those deals where uh particularly with quail hunting they have a tendency to pop up and come, go down and mm -hmm. as you shoot and they pop up and they go down you can't tell a lot of times if you hit that bird and that's the one downside of the, having a dog that is not very good at uh at uh, finding dead birds or retrieving um, I had no idea. I, mean, I think at the time I said, I, I can't tell if I hit him or not. Well, your dog figured out I had, thank God. <laughs> yeah. And I had a Hungarian partridge story that I'll save for our next podcast in the same vein, but uh, it is true. And, 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 and let me, let me suggest something that <clears throat> I don't know if I've mentioned this or not. I killed a, well, I didn't, I thought I killed a chucker on a, a great overhead shot. One of the few I made, uh, last season in that regard, we couldn't find it. Uh, I had a pretty good idea where it was, and we searched pretty hard. It was getting toward dark, and so I wanted to find that thing. Never did. But on Flick's GPS collar controller, I can mark a spot. You know, we call them waypoints. You call them whatever you want. You've got ways to do that on your some device. And I said, well, okay, let, let's just hunt back around and come into that spot from downwind at the end of the day because it was on the way back to the truck anyhow. 
Sure enough, beep, beep, there goes the indicator. Flick is on point. He's got two of his forefeet in the little creek. The other two are on dry ground, and he's pointing right at what looks to me a taxidermied live chucker. Sitting there, just staring at us, wondering why we're looking at him. And Flick, is his eyes are bulging, his tail's quivering. He wants that bird. I put two and two together, and sure enough, sent him for a quote, retrieve, unquote. And it all was well with the world. But it was because we didn't trust our own judgment when it came to what we hit and not hit. So lesson there. Um, we walked some incredible ground. And I got to tell you, Mark, one of the interesting things uh, in most welcome aspects of the habitat at Henry's place was that patch we walked that was full of, um, you know, the really tall bunch grass that um, I'm pretty sure is called Great Basin Wild Rye. These are bunches, if you can imagine everybody, oh, a f- couple feet around at the bottom. And the, the grass grows up out of that in kind of a big bunch, and it goes generally vertically. And some of it's taller than you. And I have learned over the decades that that stuff almost always has some kind of critter in it. Hopefully something we can shoot at. I remember a place years ago where every one of those bunches had one valley quail underneath it. I remember (laughs) other places where, uh, well, I'll never forget a, a ringneck that was running from bunch to bunch thinking he was, you know, sneaking away from us but when he hid behind the bunch his tail stuck out the other side (laughs) yeah he he didn't last long but um but that that was so fun and so thick i mean people this is my legs are cramping up just thinking about fighting through that stuff but we did get another bird there and i know it's another story where you know it doesn't have the happy ending but uh but what's the lesson in in finding birds and that thick stuff and and what what could we have done differently there tell people what what you did well we were hunting in there we'd already gotten some quail up shot some quail in there and you know son of a gun a rooster comes actually a number of pheasants started to come up and then there was what i call a sleeper rooster uh you know the hens will go out first and then i have i've you know learned over the years a lot of times you get into a bunch of pheasants like that in thick cover just stand there for a minute or so and yeah. just wait and yeah. see, see, see whose nerve breaks first mm-hmm. and son of a gun, you know, the dogs were working in there and they had been pointing, but again, hand pheasants and darn if this roost sleeper rooster gets up and, uh, you know, it was cross is a uh, uh, yeah, right to left crossing shot, no sweat shot, knocked him down immediately. And I'll, I'll try and shoot them twice just because they're such tough, ornery birds. But it went down so fast, I never even got a chance to pull the trigger a second time. And we lost the bird in the heavy cover. Uh, we had both dogs in there for uh, how long. We had it marked. You know, you had it marked for me so I could walk right to the spot. And it just, it's one of those things where um, it, it just, it happens. And I, you know, as we talked later, I think, my post-mortem on that is, is I probably, I have to close my left eye. And so I have a tendency in those sort of going away birds to shoot off to the side. Mm, I don't mm-hmm. quite get the, there's a little bit of uh, drift that happens a little more drift than you think, because you have both eyes, one eye closed. So you don't have the stereoscopic vision. And I'm sure what I did is I shot him in the wing and didn't get pellets up into the head area. 
broke the wing, he hit the ground, and he hit the ground running like a rabbit. We saw that happen, I think it was yeah. Sunday. Yeah, Dude, we did. If, yeah. Flick, if Flick hadn't been on that bird, we, you know, that bird was 100 yards away from where he landed when your dog finally caught up to him. But fortunately, that was out in the open. Yeah. Who uh, knows? Where, and then, you know, who knows where that, that bird went? Although, if I, I'm probably going to hunt there again this weekend. There's a chance, if that bird's wing was broken, that we'll find him again. Uh, yeah. at some point which i've happened i've had that happen before i mean you we were on a hunt chucker hunting a couple of years ago yeah you and me <laughs> i know and again again a certain a certain uh dog was involved there that we i'd been out with a friend in this spot and he had knocked down a chucker we couldn't find and I, a week later we came back to hunt that with uh, your dog and son of a gun put him on the ground that what about two minutes later comes back with a chucker live <laughs> Why? That was the bird that my buddy had knocked on and broken a wing. Yeah, for all we know, he had so, chased it, you know, a, a quarter mile, you know, to catch up to a runner like that. But if, yeah, again, you're right, Mark. What a great lesson. Yeah. Uh, but you, again, you just there's nothing wrong with going back a week later. I've gone back two days later and found birds with broken wings. Yeah. They just for some reason they have a tendency to get away. But again, like you said, that was really thick uh, cover that causes cramps at night <laughs> yeah. i got two things to take out of that one the first is you know i yeah i'm a fly fisher too and you know if i see a fish rising in a stream i i'm all over that i see it i look to the bank is that a old is that the thickest willow on the bank right next to that rise or is there a boulder of a certain shape i mark it so specifically and i like to think i do that a lot with birds when they hit the ground as well of course it doesn't help when they run but if they hit the ground good and dead that helps a lot but what i could have done in that case and this is you know i'm going to employ this strategy if i ever hit another bird this year and that is when it hits the ground the first thing i'm going to do and, and in this case i could have done it I'm going to count. I was, I was on that wire fence and I should have counted fence posts. That's what I should have done. And then walked to that post and then made the right into that, uh, low, low spot, that swale we were hunting there. That might've given us just an extra five yards of narrowing it down, if you will. But the other thing I thought was, man, that bird went down so hard but I don't think it did. Like you said, it, here's what it did, everybody. And this is the fascinating part. We all know if a bird's going down and its head is still up and it might even have its feet down, that's a, that's a runner for sure. But this one cartwheeled. It's like somebody picked him up by the head and just lobbed him sideways. And he went off like a sideways Frisbee. And you could see it, which I don't think is near the indication I used to think it was that that's a dead bird. What do you think? No, it, uh, <laughs> no and and you, you, I hadn't heard you say went sideways, which yeah. tells me I hit him on the side and yeah. pushed him yeah. to the right. It would have been in that case, and I've seen that happen when I'm not shooting and I have a different angle when a friend is shooting, and you don't realize it, but when you hit that bird, it actually pushes them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and uh, you don't see that from your perspective typically because you're over the gun and the recoil and all of that, but. Yeah, like I said, I think I just shot far enough off to the side that I hit his wing and the way the pellets are just didn't get up into the head. Just I shot just a little too far out, hit him with the edge, but I would say the right edge of the pattern, unfortunately. Yeah. And but on the other hand, I've had situations where I like I know that bird, I stoned it, and I spent a half an hour in one time um 
trying to find that bird, not this one we're talking about, trying to find a bird I knocked down. And I finally stepped on the dead bird. The dogs <laughs> never scented it. The dogs never scented it. But before it died, it had burrowed a good six or eight inches into that underneath the grass. Oh, not surprised at all. Absolutely. So, you know, it's yeah. just, and I've gone, I've gone back two, three hours later and found the bird exactly where I had marked it down. And, but for whatever reason, the dog couldn't pick up the scent at that point. So another, you know, good point is if you can, go back a couple hours later and give the dog another shot at it. Yeah, I, th I think you're right for a whole, whole bunch of reasons. Number one, it might finally expire and hold still. Number two, that gives a little uh, a little bit of time for some scent to come out of there. But like you said, if they're burrowed down in deep, and we've had that happen in every state in the West, uh, on television too, for that matter, if they're underneath some kind of thick vegetation, it is so hard for any any scent to kind of quiver its way through that vegetation you just got to cross your fingers and hope you got a, a good dog with a good nose who's willing to dig in deep and you know i joked about it there but it was absolutely true what we needed right then and there was a broad-shouldered labrador that had nothing better to do than dig for birds nope, and i absolutely agree on that absolutely agree and then I've also pulled dead checkers out of yep. rabbit holes. <laughs> yep, and I had a wire hair that had to dig under a fallen log for a rough grouse. So uh, cross your fingers on that stuff. Every you know, just keep trying. Just keep trying. That's all. You know, if we can, you know, if we train our dogs a little bit better, that'll help. And I'm, you know, I'm working on that every day too. But uh, here we are, Mark. If you had to sum it up. Um, yeah, how do you how do you look at a day like that? We we sat down and we opened that bottle and had one quick one because I had a long drive back. But you know what? What's your kind of up? You know, your top line reaction to to a day like that? Just it's one of those perfect days. I mean, you know, I don't know what we could probably trot out a bunch of cliches. It's just a perfect day. We had good dog work. We had good weather. We had a nice mixed bag of uh, of uh, species. Um, you know, it wasn't the, uh, at the end of the day while I was was tired. I wasn't completely exhausted like a full day of chucker hunting. Um, and by the way, now full day of chucker hunting is a lot fewer hours than it used to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it just you know it was it was uh, in, in a lot of ways a perfect day. You know, and then the to to uh, top it all off we finished it right as it started to rain <laughs> <laughs> yeah we had feared that all day you're right you know we we, we were going to get together and if it rained ah to heck with it but if it didn't rain let's go hunting and we got lucky until 4 15 i think exactly I mean, just oh. at the right time to head back and it's just you know again it's just one of those perfect days where um you know it's kind of like back in the days and i was you know if you play sports you know i had a, a team sport you know the first thing is about the team winning and the second thing is about you having a good day and it you know to me the team winning is we had good dog work uh and we had a good day gunning we brought put some birds in the bag to eat which those the ones i got anyway didn't survive tuesday evening uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it, everything came together. There were no problems. There were no porcupine issues. There were no, uh, you know, we're hunting and uh, that property, the way we hunt it in a lot of cases, except for one, one, one little spot, uh, 
we're no, not anywhere near any roads that can cause a problem. Um, it's just, you know, just a, a perfect day. You know, I can't, I can't, um, argue that one bit what i can tell you is it was perfect for so many different reasons but again you know every time i take a dog with somebody else and their dog i you know i worry about all the things that everybody worries about when dogs get along but we have you you have three dogs and i have one dog and they all seem to get along and uh and that's not always the case maybe you've had one of those i know well i know i've i've brought somebody else with dogs like that and uh it it is so nice to see dog not only do they get along but they're so beautiful i mean what they did out there and i'm going to just add one more thing we talk about this a lot in navda but it's true of your your setters too who can of course test in the navda program as well but the point is um the day before we hunted hungarian partridge in wide open country where 400 yards was a you know, pretty tight range for for all of our dogs. And yet here we were in a creek bottom and um, the dogs were working nice and tight and uh, working every bit of that cover, you know, at 30 to 150 yards, depending on where we were. And the, uh, the instinctive drives these dogs have to do the things they do um, from covering the ground to finding the birds to retrieving the birds all those things continue to dazzle me every day and then you look at them on the drive home and you think wow aren't we lucky aren't you lucky mark absolutely absolutely it's about you know at the end of the day it's about the dog work and i think we talked about this before i you know geez i've been hunting almost continuously since the first of september and as they get later into the season it's really about getting the dogs out and running them you know, I've had plenty of chances to shoot at birds and so on and so forth. But it's just nice to get out and watch them run. Yeah. Particularly if we can get out in <clears throat> big open country. And also to your point, these dogs, uh, you know, we, we hunt them on multiple upland species. And it never ceases to amaze me how they learn to adjust their range depending on what we're doing. Absolutely. And on and, that, go ahead. And, and the last thing is I tend to hunt the same places you know over the last 20 plus years and it's kind of funny once a dog learns some ground i've had <laughs> dogs that will, <laughs> will literally run over i mean i'll put them on the ground and they'll run over to where they know the birds are supposed to be oh that's and they just ignore in fact <laughs> real quick i had one time where we were i got involved in a, a american field trial a qualifier and they needed to have more dogs for it any a long story short we were running on ground that i hunted all the time and my one dog as soon as we put him on the ground at the breakaway he just takes off to the south to the northeast and goes right on point ah, that's, <laughs> that's my my training every yeah, every training home. day <laughs> that's right that's you know it's his home field he knew exactly where he in fact, the judge goes, where's he going? I go, no, he's going to go point birds because that's what he does over there. I love so it. it's really amusing. You, so. you know, they are, they are creatures of habit and God bless him for it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, Mark Avolio is on that end. I'm Scott Linden on this end. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. A lot more to talk about. I'm giving away a prize. You just got to answer a simple question. We're going to talk about your hunts last weekend. But Mark, I'm going to turn you loose. Thank you so much again for that hunt, 
for your hospitality, and uh, let's do it again sometime soon. Uh, well, let's, and my pleasure, too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You bet. The rest of you stick around. Uh, Dr. Tim's natural performance dog food is Flick's food of choice. And I'll tell you why. I told you he did 50 miles in three days. Um, and during those three days, I don't feed in the morning because I don't want to run the risks of all. Yeah, there's performance questions and then there's stomach twist questions and all that. So Flick gets fed at the end of the day. If you're doing the same thing, you want to ensure that that single meal of the day has everything your performance dog needs. The right kind of fats, for example, the right kind of proteins and the right proportions to fuel your dog's peak performance. Well, Dr. Tim takes all that into consideration because he's racing sled dogs and he knows that that's critical as well. Learn more in two places. First at drtims.com, drtims.com, where you can read up on all of these things and why they're so important. Then watch the videos on my YouTube channel and see, um, see graphically why these things are so important. Got lots of dog nutrition and performance videos there that, um, that you can learn more from as well. Don't forget, uh, Dr. Tim will deliver free and you'll get a 30% discount on your first order. Just use Upland Nation as the code at checkout. And um, if you're ever out our way somewhere in the West and you're traveling about looking for things to do and you maybe want to shoot a little bit or if you uh, are shopping for a new shotgun, take a look at my friends at midvalleyclays.com. Midvalley clays.com they've got a shooting school and you might recognize some of the terrain out there we shot the pilot for clay target shootout there a few years back it's an incredible facility with every kind of clay target sport available to you an rv park so if you want to stay for a couple days maybe work on some shotgun shopping or try every one of the games from sporting to five span to five stand to sp- uh, to skeet and trap it's all right there at mid valley clays learn more about them at mid they'll help you with your shotgun shopping they'll help you with your shooting take a lesson and um, tell dave fiedler and chris greenwood i said hello We're back with the Upland Nation Puzzler and then a summary of your last hunts. We're going to go through some of your comments, and they are good. First off, the Puzzler for this week. Remember, at the end of December, you'll get a late Christmas present, or at least one of you will. A Scott Linden Signature Series over-the-shoulder Jaeger lead. This one's in camouflage. It's got a slip loop. So if you're a retriever kind of guy, you know the drill on that. But even if you're not, it's a great and convenient way to control your dog, keep the lead handy, and then also slip it on, slip it off very easily. Simple question. Look it up if you have to. I don't mind. And then Facebook message me. Any of the pages will do. Here it is. You know what? Jaeger in German means in English. And I'll just spell it. Jaeger is spelled J-A-E-G-E-R. What does Jaeger mean in German? 
So I asked you how your last hunt went, and uh, boy, did I get some comments. Uh, love them all. They're spectacular. Eric Copang says he found three coveys of bobs in two hours in South Texas. Man, that sounds like a great story. I um, am a little jealous, Eric, but congratulations. And speaking of great finds, his setter retrieved a down quail that he would have never found without her. Yeah, it does happen once in a while. That's conservation success. Absolutely, Eric. David DeSmither says 60 MPH plus wins. The house is clean. Okay, I think I get it. Think about it out there. My good friend Lance Larson, woodcarver extraordinaire, said they went on their first Mearns quail hunt. Zane pointed to Covey, got his first ever Mearns quail in the bag, and <laughs> I love it. Lance's 13-year-old Weimariner Mauser, good boy Mauser, walked by his side the whole hunt. Rob Daniels saw the most pheasants he's ever seen. No, not there, in Illinois. Travis Hampton, were you out there with me? Six miles, 1,800 vertical feet, loads of birds, great dog work. Helped a buddy get his first Hungarian partridge. Right on, you deserve a, a blue ribbon. Dan Lenson, good, but running low on roosters. He's blaming it on the drought and habitat. Yeah, it's almost always part of the equation. John Good had a good hunt in, good, hell, I can't even see the tailgate under all those birds in South Dakota. Of course, there's about nine dogs up there trying to get the glory, which means there's probably about 14 hunters back there. Um, incredible hunt. Congratulations and say hello to all my friends out there in Pier. Jason Mittman says, miles of walking, skittish birds with Hey, John Whitewell, Whitwell, Deuce, Trooper, and Bailey. And I hope that photo is just set up. It's an overturned old car with two dogs and a couple birds, uh, three dogs and a couple birds in the foreground, um, all the better. Yeah, just a scenic opportunity. George Cummins, always great to see your pictures of Samson. So glad he's doing so well. Cecil, no, Colin Smith did a lot of walking, flushed a rooster in Wisconsin. Oh yeah. And then two does. What's the limit on does these days? And then Chris Bridwell, wish I was there. He was at the NFR in Vegas. I sure miss going to that. Used to work in that business a little bit. Loved when they left OKC for Las Vegas. That's for sure. Thank you all for your summaries, your great hunts. Um, I'm sure you're having a great time right now. Uh, if you're listening to us on the way out or the way back, thank you for doing that. In fact, all of that brought to you by findbirdhuntingspots.com. New material every week to help you find places to hunt, train, care for your dog. Did a story on a dog that um, almost came back from the dead to become a versatile champion in the NAVDA program. Thank you so much to Scratch and for owner Nancy Annisfield for being a subject. An inspirational and incredible story. Take it all in at findbirdhuntingspots.com. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoy what you hear at the Upland Nation podcast, please tell a friend. That's how we grow. Stay in touch at the Wing Shooting USA and the Upland Nation Facebook pages. We can always talk there. Merry Christmas to everybody. 
including a special treat in your stocking for those who left ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts. I'll leave you with this. I don't know where this belongs. Maybe on a welcome mat at the front door. Uh, wherever you can find a place for it, I can guarantee it. It says, if you're uncomfortable around my dog, that's okay. I'm happy to lock you in the other room when you come over. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Have a great holiday. See you in the field.